just as we start this morning, um, I want us to, to just take a minute and think about those things in your life that you love. And I just want you to, to think about that for a second. What is it in your life that you love? What do you express love towards and how do you express love towards that? I want you to also think about what is it that you find comfort in? What gives you comfort and what gives you value? In fact, what gives you security? If you had to put your trust in something, what would it be? And so I want us to think about that this morning as we're looking at this passage together. And we're going to be looking here at the last part of Acts 19. And if you recall, when we, we left off this passage last week, we, we looked specifically at the fact that God was moving in the hearts of His people and that He was identifying Him as the true source, as Jesus as the true source of our salvation in the face of counterfeit gods. That Christ was who He claimed to be. Well, this week, instead of it being kind of counterfeit religions, we're looking at the things that vie for the attention of our hearts. The things that vie for the attention of our, of our lives of our love, the things that, that rule us, that master us. And so we're going to be looking at Acts 19 and looking at this issue today of kind of an issue for many of us that we might look at and say, well, what in the world does idolatry have to do with anything today? I don't worship gold or bronze statues. I don't worship pieces of wood. But the problem was is that these people didn't worship simple pieces of wood or bronze statue. It was that their heart was devoted to something completely different than that one true God. And so let's go ahead and look at this passage together. We're going to be in Acts 19. We're going to start in verse 21. We're going to go through verse 41. Let's go ahead and stand as we read the scripture together this morning. And this is what it says. It says, Now after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. The way being those who are following Christ. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but also in all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may become disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. 
When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristocrus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent it to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hands, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you've brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he'd said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for passages like this that get at, the, get at our hearts, get at the true source of our own worship. Father, I pray this morning that as we hear your word preached, that we might have hearts to hear and that our, we might be open to what is being proclaimed through your word. We pray that it would be you who, who speaks, not, not me, not any one of us, but God, that it would be your spirit that moves within us. God, I pray that you'd tear down barriers in our own hearts, that you would give us hearts of flesh and not hearts of stone. God, may we put the things that we're worried about at your feet this morning. May we put distractions that may arise in our own hearts or in our own minds, may we put those aside. And we do pray, God, against any work of the enemy to destroy, to dissuade, to confuse in the name of Jesus. Thank you that your grace has already given us victory through Jesus Christ. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. Central to this passage this morning is the idea that persuading people towards the gospel often brings spiritual opposition. Persuading people towards the gospel often brings spiritual opposition. The gospel brings opposition. And I think sometimes we can pray in ways that we want to pray against opposition at work. And what we're going to see in this passage is that opposition to the gospel actually reveals our own hearts. 
It reveals the hearts of those who are in opposition. And God uses that opposition to actually glorify His name. That it's actually a part of His own purposes. In verse 21, we're told, Now after these events, Paul resolved in his spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. So Paul decides here that he has, he's going to go into Rome. He wants to go to Rome. He wants to share the gospel there. He's been sent out to share the gospel among not just the Jews, but also the Gentiles. Now, it is interesting that Paul then sends out his two helpers to go out into the other areas of Macedonia, which allows Paul to stay longer in the region of Ephesus. Now, we're told that while they're in Ephesus, we're told in verse 23 that about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Now, no little disturbance is like a big battle. Think of it that way. That there became this overwhelming dispute and concern. It doesn't really stress it as well. I think that in the language in Greek, we're actually seeing this as, a, as a, this kind of this, this massive kind of uprising. It's big. And so this big uprising that arises, it says, is a result of what verse 24 tells us, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but also almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Gods made with hands are not gods. Now, this was completely offensive, right? But it was offensive for probably the wrong reasons. Now, we kind of look at that today and we go, well, of course, we don't make statues and worship those statues. How foolish. But those statues represented something. They, they represented what they, they, they wanted, something tangible to put their hope in. They wanted something tangible to put their security in. They wanted something tangible to, to find their comfort. And these, these little idols provided that. We can see that in lots of things today. We can actually find that in money, can't we? That so long as I have enough money, so long as I have this, I'm secure. We can, we can find it in comfort. We can chase after comfort and safety and make that an idol. We can chase after our rights and act as if those are the things that are going to ultimately protect us. But we're told here that Paul is persuading them that God made with, God's made with hands are not God's. So what is he actually persuading them of? Well, in 2 Corinthians 5, 11, verses 
for excuse me, 5, verse 11 and 14 through 15, we're told this. This is Paul speaking. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. For the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. What's he saying? He's actually saying here that man, through Adam, because of Adam's sin, inherited sin, that we had a sin nature, that we are completely fallen apart from Christ, that we are all sinners. Each of us are sinners. We can actually look at our lives and see sin at work in our life. Don't have to teach it, right? As a young child, right, one of our first responses is not one of obedience, it's rebellion. That's why a child's first words are often no, right? I mean, in, in all honesty, it's one of the great tells of what our, our nature is like. That our nature actually is naturally in a state of rebellion. We rebel against authority. We, we rebel against uh, those who, who seek to, to be Lord over our lives. And so, the earliest thing that a child experiences is a parent who is trying to, to, to shepherd them, to be kind of lord them, move them forward. Obedience is not natural to the child. Obedience is not natural to us because our sin nature moves towards disobedience. That's what he's saying. He's saying that when Adam chose to sin in the Garden of Eden following creation, all of humanity inherited that sin. But then notice what he says. He said that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, for him who for their sake died and was raised again. So what he's pointing out first and foremost is one died because of sin, but now we have Christ who died for our sin, taking all of that sin. And now that same God who died for us through Jesus Christ that same person, Jesus, dying for our sin, has now died for all so that we might live no longer for ourselves, but for Him and in and through Him. What the Gospel is, what He's proclaiming, what He's saying is this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But Jesus has made a way. Jesus has made a way that the one true God sent His Son, God in flesh, to take the rightful penalty and punishment for our sin, which is death. He died that death for us on the cross and then was raised up from the dead on the third day. And for all who believe in Him, put their faith in Him, confess Him as Lord, so we repent, we acknowledge that we're sinners, and then we confess Christ as Lord, for all of those, it is now the risen Christ who lives in you. And the Scripture tells us that we're actually a new creation. That the idea behind that is, is no longer are we powerless to sin, but that we can live for righteousness and we live for God's sake, for His sake, as 
Lord of, of our lives. That's what he's saying. So he's persuading them that there is one God, not many. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to me but no man comes to the Father but through me, right? That's what he's he's claiming. So when we understand that Jesus is the way, there can be no other gods. And so Paul is telling them, listen, there's no other gods. There's no one else that needs to be served. But notice, he's told them that, and opposition arises. So what we see in this passage are three things that follow when we persuade or we encourage people to follow the gospel. So persuasion to follow the gospel first confronts idols present in people's lives. It confronts idols present in people's lives. Notice they gathered and it says, man, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And then he goes on and he says, and there's a danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence she whom all Asia and the world worship. Now, idolatry, as we mentioned, is not just bronze or wooden statues, but the objects of the worship of our heart. Idolatry is nothing but what our heart worships. It could be food. It could be sex. It could be entertainment. It could be comfort. It could be success. It could be money. It could be achievement. It could be romance. It could be self. But it's anything that is taking away our affection from God. Now, it doesn't mean that those things, as you can see, are bad things by themselves. It is that we elevate them to do in our lives what only God can do. Kyle Eidemann defines idolatry this way. He says, the instant something takes the place of God... The moment it becomes an end in itself, rather than something to lay at God's throne, it becomes an idol. When someone or something replaces the Lord God in a position of glory in our lives, then that person or thing, by definition, has become our God. When we seek to live for those things at the expense of God's righteousness, it's an idol. When we seek to live for those things at the expense of of allowing God to be the source of our security, the source of our comfort, the source of our purpose, it becomes an idol. When we lose sight that God's glory is what our lives are about, we lose sight of it. And all of a sudden it becomes an idol. He goes on and he says, when you subtract religious language, worship is the built-in human reflex to put your hope in something or someone and then chase after it. I love that. And then to chase after it. In my life, I know that specifically growing up, as much as baseball can be a good thing, in my life, baseball was a major idol. It was the thing that I lived and breathed. Everything was slave to it. Everything. My life was controlled by it. It was what I wanted. It was what I pursued. Christ really was, 
way back here, oh, I believe that there was Christ, and I believed in Christ. I believe that He died and that He rose again, but He certainly was not the Lord of my life. I had certainly not confessed Him. And James tells us in the Scriptures that even the demons believe that Jesus died and rose again. The distinction is who they confess as Lord of their lives. What did that look like in my life? Well, my value came from baseball. My worth came from baseball. I've valued my success based on baseball. The things I spent my time invested in was baseball. And everything that really needed to be first found in Christ, my value, my worth, my success, my hope, my pursuit, was found in a temporal thing. A thing that was here one day and actually gone the next. What God's not saying in this passage is that you can't enjoy certain things, but He says they need to be under His Lordship. When we have things in our life that we, we tend to chase after and it's going against God's standard, God's desire for us, it is actually violating His Word. That is an idol in our life. And so, the Gospel confronts the idolatry in our lives. See, Christ seeks to be the Lord of our lives. And there's no hierarchy it's, it's not like this idea of put God here and then a second and a third and a fourth and a fifth. It is that when we love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind, that He shows us how to love others as ourself. But it is a direct outflow from loving God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. That's why in, in, in Exodus 20, verse 3 through 6 in the Ten Commandments, He says, you shall have no other God's before me, that word actually translates better in Hebrew, besides me. Meaning, there shouldn't be any God in front of me, but there shouldn't be any God that's even on an equal playing field with me. And then he goes on and he says this. He says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on earth beneath and that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. The only way that we can keep God's commandments is through Jesus Christ. The Scripture tells us that the law actually shows us our ineptitude. We can't do it. No matter how hard you try, you will never perfectly worship God. You will never perfectly keep your heart pure. You will never perfectly be able to not covet. And it is only through Jesus that we're able to do it. And it is only through Jesus, through His blood that Christ has made us whole and pure. Because Christ has obeyed the law perfectly. He has fulfilled the law. And it is Christ who lives in us when we confess Jesus as the Lord of our life. 
Stephen Cole says, both the message of the gospel and the lives of those who have believed the gospel confront sinners with their sin. The message necessarily confronts people with their sin because if people are not sinners, they have no need for a savior. A gospel that presents Jesus as the way to a happier life but dodges the sin issue is no gospel at all. The Bible plainly indicts us all. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us has perfectly obeyed God's holy standards. God has called us to be a people who repent and believe on Him for our salvation. And so this gospel message, which is saying that you're a sinner, that I'm a sinner, and that we need a Savior, it should confront the idols in our hearts. Whether you've already responded to the gospel through faith, or you're still even wondering what this gospel is about, the hope of Jesus, and why you even need Him, or why you even want to think about following Him, regardless of what that is, it should be confronting the idols in our heart. Right now, there should be a stirring in our own spirits. What are the things that we're pursuing at the expense of a relationship with God? We need to honestly ask ourselves that question. What idols are in the way of actually worshiping and following, being surrendered to God, serving the one true God? 1 Corinthians 8, verses 4-6 through says, Therefore we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. We exist for God's glory. Every single one of us was created for the glory of God. You were not an accident. Every child that is born is a blessing. There is not one that is an accident. And the blessing of a child, each person, and we all start as children which means we are all a blessing. And that blessing is designed to what? It is to point us to the glory of God. It is to point even our own parents to the glory of God. It's to show us our utter dependency and need for something and someone greater than ourselves that can only be found in Jesus Christ. And so when we persuade people to follow the gospel, whether they have choosing to follow Jesus or whether they've made no decision to follow Jesus, it should confront idols in our lives. It should stir us each and every time. It should cause us to look and find where sin's at in our life and begin to remove it. The second aspect of persuading people to to follow the gospel is that it invokes anger and confusion for those committed to the greatness of their idols. It provokes anger and confusion for those committed to the greatness of their idols. Think about that for a second. 
Ever heard a message before that as you listened to it, you just went, yeah, right. Yeah, it's not happening. Ever heard a message before that in the middle of it, you start defending your actions? Like, just all of a sudden, your, your spirit's conscience is pricked, and you're like, well, that's not true, right? Ever heard a message on giving before? Where in your own heart, all of a sudden what starts coming up is, well, I understand that Jesus said to the man that he needed to sell everything. But God doesn't call everybody to do that. And so I'm not everybody. And that's not happening. Ever been there? Now that's true what we're saying. That God doesn't always call us to do that. He does call us to freely let go of everything. Because everything that we have is a blessing from Him. He gives and He takes away. And so if God chooses to take away what we have, okay. But our hearts are actually revealed in that moment, are they not? In that moment, aren't we all of a sudden aware how much we depend on what we have? What we're finding our security and our comfort and our happiness in. We haven't even processed whether or not God wanted us to do that or not. Now it's easy to look at this and to look at this passage and say, these guys are seeing this, this is ridiculous. They're worshiping these, these, these gods which are made out of wood and stone. In fact, it says that when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and aristocrats, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. This became an absolute mob. Talk about a flash mob occurring. These people were incited. And you can look out and go, Oh, that's, that's foolish. They should at least take a moment and, and reflect on whether what Paul was saying was true. Think how quickly when we like the idols in our lives, when we like those things that we want to hang on to, think about how quickly we dismiss what's being said. Think about how we choose not to take a moment and reflect on whether it's true or not. We just move to a place and go, yeah, I'm not dealing with it. I kind of like what I have. Sometimes what happens in our life is sin is so familiar that actually dealing with that sin in our life is rather vulnerable and scary because it's actually requiring us to find our trust and dependence upon God with a reckless abandon that can only be met by Jesus being the one who sustains us. See, the gospel challenges the greatness of idols which are being served in comparison to the one true God. Now, why does it invoke anger? Well, Jeremiah 10, 3-6 actually tells us first something about idols. It says, For the customs of the peoples are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber filled, and they cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. This is what he says then. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil. Neither is it in them to do good. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. Even those who are worshiping idols, if we want to sit back and say, well, idolatry doesn't really apply today, what he's saying here is idolatry has always been an issue of man's heart, not of the object. 
it's always been an issue of the heart, not of the object. And so God is concerned about what's going on with our heart. Romans 1, 18-23 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Here's the thing. Over time, if we choose to reject that gospel, what God is telling us here is our eyes begin to be darkened to His truth. We're actually suppressing the ability to see the truth. God has actually come and over time, because of our unrighteousness, we have silenced the voice of the Spirit. And we have now moved into our own delusion. Listen why. He says in verse 19, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. You can look out and around and you can see the glory of God, not, not in the creation, but in the creation of the creation. Instead, man chooses to often worship the creature or the creation rather than the Creator. He goes on and he says this, having been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Wow. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. The gospel will invoke anger and confusion when we prefer our idols to the one true God. A wonderful way for you to find out where sin in your life is, is look at where you're defensive. Look at what you're defending. In your life, what are you defending? Do you make excuses for sin? Do you fit, say simply because, well, you know what? We love each other and so God doesn't care really what we do. Or, you know, God wants me to be happy and so He wants me to have these things even if it costs me everything else in my life. Defensiveness and anger and excuses should be the things that actually point us to the sin that is at work within our life. God's word was not to be compromised. He gave it to us so that we might thrive in Him. Now here's the third thing. The first is that when we persuade others to follow the gospel, the gospel first confronts idols in our lives. Second, it does invoke anger and confusion over the gods that we are placing ahead of the one true God. And finally, when we persuade others to follow the gospel, it's 
We have to trust that God's sovereignty to deal with opposition for the sake of his will. It trusts God's sovereignty to deal with opposition for the sake of his will. It says here that what comes out of this is that the town clerk had quieted the crowd and the men of Ephesus, he says, were in there who does not know the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky. Now, picture this just for a second. Everyone in this town had seen this thing fall. Most scholars believe that it was a, it was a meteorite that actually hit. Somehow, and this is what the archaeologists have determined, is that this meteorite and this statue, Artemis, was a multi-breasted woman. It was considered a god of fertility and a protector of the religious temples. Now, it is amazing to think that this, this creature was, was being worshipped. But in the face of this worship, in the face of this aspect where the whole city has seen this, it does not stop Paul and those who are in Ephesus from witnessing, from sharing the gospel. And as he shares the gospel, it requires a trust in the sovereignty of God to deal with the opposition that will arise and that God will bring about his will. We're told specifically here that seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash, for you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. He goes on, If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. There is nothing to suggest, in fact, there is a lot to suggest that this town clerk is not a follower of Christ. In fact, he supports the worship of of Artemis. And yet, God uses this person to sovereignly bring about his purposes. First, through the protection of his people in unexpected ways. When we proclaim the gospel of Christ, God protects us in unexpected ways. It looks different. A year ago, we as churches began meeting with James Gore, who is the supervisor for District 4 here in this county. It was initially to be informed about what was going on with COVID. What has happened has been we have remained the only group that he has met with throughout the entire pandemic. We have had access to all of our state senators that represent us in this region. We have had access to health directors We've experienced a relationship with James that has developed and grown, and I believe that James has seen the gospel of Christ in us. And as a result of that, his own pursuit of Christ has, has increased. Never in the world did we imagine that God would then begin to use this for influence in this county, to allow churches to partner together, to have access to the different needs within the county, and that's what's happening. It is amazing how God, when we work in the persuasion of the gospel, how God sovereignly 
protects his people in unexpected ways. The second thing that we see about this God's sovereignty is that he clarifies truth. He clarifies truth. Now notice what he does here. Even in a kind of distorted way, it says, but if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today. Now what he's actually saying, the Greek actually pulls this out a little bit better. But it's actually tying back to Demetrius' statement of saying we're in danger of losing our wealth and of the statue, Artemis. And he's saying, actually, you're wrong. The real danger is not the loss of wealth. And the real danger is not that. That's completely irrational. The actual danger is that we're in danger of being arrested. God has a way of bringing about the truth in ways that we can never even imagine. And he clarifies that truth. And it's very much the same way that he does that in our own hearts. John 14, 26 tells us this. It speaks the power of the Spirit to be the revealer. And this is what it says. It says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. John 16, 13 adds this. It says, When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. God is always the clarifier of his truth. And when we go to persuade others towards the gospel, we have to let God do his work. You see, Christianity was never a religion of force. It was never grown through propaganda. Christ's methodology was always one of a relationship that came through Jesus Christ and one of persuasion of the gospel. It was not one that was granted by force, and it was not one that forced people into it, but rather, Paul as the example, and Jesus Christ as the truth, being persuaded the gospel upon our heart. And so I'd like to persuade you this morning, if you haven't considered the gospel of Jesus Christ, consider it. You have an enemy to your souls who is active and he loves to deceive and he loves to destroy. And you have a person in Jesus Christ, the living God, who died for your sin, who rose again, and for all those who put their faith in Jesus, He will grant you His Spirit to live inside you, giving you all understanding. But more than that, removing your sin, washing you clean, making you pure and holy before the living God. He is the source of our eternal life. For those who have put their faith in Christ, may you evaluate this this morning. May you allow the gospel to confront your sin openly. May you see areas of defensiveness and 
and anger that rise up when you hear things within the Gospel, may those be times where you stop and slow down and ask God to give you a heart to hear and the humility to repent. And may we be a people who are committed to trusting in God's sovereignty to bring about His will as we're faithful to declare the good news of His Gospel. I want to leave us with the word of G. Campbell Morgan. And he simply said this, The church persecuted has always been the church pure, and therefore the church powerful. The church patronized has always been the church in peril, and very often the church paralyzed. May we not shy away from spiritual opposition. And may we not become angry with it, but may we seek the one true God who we know works through and in it. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can come before you this morning. Thank you that we can see the power of your word. And may we be a people who are committed to the gospel. God, upon our hearts today, as we consider the gospel, may you work in our lives. For those of us who who don't know you, God, may we respond to your gospel with humility. May we consider the truths that have been placed before us today. And for those who have responded, may we consider your words that teach us that your truth confronts our sin and has dealt with it on the cross. So Father, may we leave here today with the humility that you desire that is worthy of of your grace. And we ask this in your name. Amen.